Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. So today we're going to be returning to our series, Going Through the Bible from Beginning to End. Perhaps you remember that before our break, our uh, summer road trip that we've had over the last four weeks, that Tom spoke last about the judges, a time when there was no consistent leader over Israel. And, but God raised up a series of judges, a leaders, but still Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what we're told several times. There was a lack of security and peace with raids from surrounding nations, not much cooperation among the Israelite tribes, not much national pride, and a prevalence of idolatry. So the last of the judges was Samuel. And when he got older... The demands of the position became too much. He appointed his two sons as judges. But they were corrupt. And they weren't accepted by the people. So the people came to Samuel, who was old, and we read, they said, Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Samuel, as you can imagine, was not happy. But the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, although this was a rejection of God's ways, it's interesting that Moses had already given regulations for the kingship. And we read about that in Deuteronomy 17. So it was something that was anticipated by God and a new era started with kings instead of judges, when under God's instruction, the last of the judges, Samuel, appointed Saul as a king of Israel. So Saul had a hard time to begin with getting the people behind him, but that slowly happened. And over a period of 42 years, he led Israel in a long and bitter war against the Philistines. But along that way, he made two serious mistakes. The first one happened shortly after he was appointed as king. And the Philistines had heard that Israel now had a king. And they got their armies together and came right after the Israelites. They didn't want this to happen, probably coming particularly against Saul. And Saul was waiting. He was gathering the army and he was waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice before they went into battle. Uh, Samuel had said that he would be there within seven days to offer this sacrifice. Saul was nervous. He was afraid. And when the seventh day came and Samuel wasn't there, he offered the sacrifice himself. And just as he was finishing giving the sacrifice, Samuel turned up on the scene. And Samuel said, what is this you've done? He said, your kingdom will not 
endure. He said, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So that was the first one. The second mistake was sometime later when God, again through Samuel, directed him to destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a nation that had made life very difficult for the Israelites when they made the trek from Egypt. And Saul went to carry out this command, but instead of totally destroying the whole nation, he kept Agag, the king, alive. And the army kept the best of the plunder instead of destroying everything. So Samuel didn't know that this is what had happened, but God informed him and said, I am grieved that I have made Saul king. So Saul said, but I did obey the Lord. Samuel disputed with him, pointed out the facts. And finally, Saul admitted, yes, okay, I sinned, but I was afraid of the people and I gave in to them. So, you know, first Saul denied that he'd sinned, but then he came around and blamed it on someone else. You're familiar with that kind of thing? Perhaps you do it yourself. Anyway, God told Samuel to stop grieving for Saul and to anoint a successor as king. He had chosen one of the sons of a man named Kish, but Samuel didn't know which of these sons God had chosen. And so Samuel had to have them come before him one by one. The first one was impressive, and Samuel thought he was the one. But God said to him, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so the second son came before uh, Samuel. Again, not the one. And after all six had come before him, he said, don't you have any other sons? And so Kish the father said, well, yes, I have one other son. He's the youngest. He's out watching the sheep. And so he was called in and he was the one. So David was his name, and David was anointed there by Samuel. And when Saul died in battle some years later, David eventually replaced him as king. And he became the greatest king in Israel. Perhaps you know some of these things, but I'm just going to list a few of these things about David so you can understand just how powerful a figure he is in Israelite history. There was no capital of Israel at the time that David was appointed. He captured Jerusalem and made it his capital. Then he brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem from where it had been since the um, time of the Exodus. And so Jerusalem also became the religious center of the nation. He was powerful in battle and he subdued the Philistines and the other surrounding nations so that the borders of Israel came to extend right from the Euphrates in the north all the way down to the Red Sea in the south. He organized the worship for the tabernacle and made plans for a great temple to replace it. 
Besides that, he wrote many of the Psalms. He was both a poet and a musician. And then he's mentioned frequently through the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you probably know many of the stories about him. He defeated Goliath, adultery with Bathsheba, pretending insanity with the king of Gath, and so on, so on. Many fascinating stories. But today we're not going to, whoops, concentrate on those so much as on two things. A covenant that God made with him and the nature of his heart. The covenant, that's one of the great covenants of the Bible and is important in knowing how God was accomplishing his plan for our salvation, a way for us to live in his presence as his people. And it looks forward to Jesus. Let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read from it. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in your heart, do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, and here I skip a few verses, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So David had this great plan to build a temple for God, a great center of worship. But God said to him, no, no, your son will do that. But to you, I'm going to give you an eternal kingdom, and I'm going to give you a house. And by house, he meant a dynasty. So the first part of the promise, uh, the building of the temple, that was fulfilled by David's son Solomon, who built a temple that lasted 400 years until it was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. The second part of the promise, a kingdom and a dynasty that would last forever, seemed to come to a stop at the same time when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and exiled the remaining people to Babylon. That happened in 587 BC. But then came Jesus 600 years later, and the New Testament recognizes Jesus as the heir of this promise to David. Do you remember the first words of the New Testament? 
they're this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's how the New Testament starts. And we're told that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, the mother of Jesus, before he was born, and said this. He said, the Lord God will give him, your son, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And when Jesus was crucified, you remember the sign that was above his head. It said, the king of the Jews. So that's the covenant that Jesus is the fulfillment of. As a king, a king whose kingdom is partially established now and will be fully established at the second coming of Jesus. Okay, so now let's go on to talk about the heart of David. Perhaps the best way to understand this matter of the heart is to look at the difference between the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Both were anointed king of Israel by Samuel at God's direction. Both of them sinned. But Saul was ultimately rejected as king, whereas David was given a promise that his dynasty would last forever. And the key to the difference in God's favor is obviously a matter of the heart. You remember I've already said that when Saul took Samuel's place and offered a sacrifice, he was told that because of what he had done, the Lord had rejected him as king and sought out a man after his own heart, after the heart of God to lead the people. Then when Samuel went to anoint one of the sons of Kish as king, he was told he was choosing wrongly because man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the hearts. As you read the story of David, and if you've not done so, you should. It's an epic story. It's obvious that David was an exceptional man, great leader who seemed to naturally gather people around him. He was a fearless warrior, a great strategist in war, a superb politician. He organized an effective government and the priests He's remembered as the greatest king of Israel. On top of that, he was a good musician. That's how he first entered Saul's service. And he wrote many of the Psalms, which have been loved by Jews and Christians for 3,000 years. He was a man of great ability and enduring influence. But whenever I read through the record of David's life and come to the story of Bathsheba, I'm shocked. In the midst of this record of a great and spiritual man, chosen by God, someone after his own heart, you suddenly have this. It's kind of a notch up from the experience I had many years ago that unfortunately some of you probably have had too, of discovering that your revered pastor is being unfaithful to his wife. And I'm not talking about our current pastor. But it happens. And it's shocking. This incident is recorded in 2 Samuel 11. That's when David was at the height of his power and after he'd received the promise of an eternal dynasty and kingdom. 
It happened in spring. At the time, says the writer of Second Samuel, when kings go off to war. But David did not go off to war. He stayed at home in his palace and he sent Joab and his whole army under him to war against the Ammonites who lived across the Jordan to the east. One evening, David was walking about on the roof of his palace when he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. He found out that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. That was a group of 30 or so warriors who had been with David since long before he became king. David sent for her, for Bathsheba. Uriah, of course, was away with the army, far away, and David slept with her. After a while, she sent him a message informing him that she was pregnant. So David attempted a cover-up. He asked for Uriah to be sent to him from the battlefield to inform him how things were going. And then, after the report, he sent Uriah home, assuming that he would sleep with his wife. The next day, David found out that Uriah didn't go to his house. Instead, he slept just outside the palace with the servants, saying that it was wrong for him to go home when the rest of the army was out at war. So the next day, David got him drunk and then sent him home again. But that didn't work either. So David arranged his death. He sent him back to the battlefield, but he instructed Joab to put Uriah at the front of the fighting in a place where the fighting was fiercest, and then to withdraw so that he would die. And Joab did just that. Uriah died. And then David took Bathsheba as his wife. And she bore him a son. So we are told the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Yeah, not exactly surprising. And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to confront David. And he confronted David by telling him about two men, one rich and one poor. He said the poor man had one lamb that he'd raised by hand with his family. They'd fed him by hand. This little lamb lived with the family. Even we're told he slept with this poor man in his bed. The rich man had many sheep, and one day the rich man had some guests come. And instead of taking his own, from his own flock to prepare a meal for the guests, he took the lamb from the poor man. David was furious and said, that man deserves to die. He must pay back four times. And then, of course, Nathan said to him, well, you are the man, David. And David responded, I have sinned. Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But nevertheless, there are going to be some consequences. He said, the sword will never leave your house. 
and the story of David's family is tragic. Two of his sons were killed by their brothers. His own eldest son took up the sword against him. God said, I will take your wives, David, and give them to one close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. That was Absalom, David's son. And then God said, the son to be born to you by Bathsheba will die. And that's the thing that happened first. So David was forgiven by God, but he still had to face the consequences of his sin in his family that were really sad. But what is special about David's heart that is not true of Saul? Obviously, it wasn't a purity of infallible obedience and sinlessness. Rather, what we see is a difference in the response to the sin once they were confronted. Saul explained away the sin, away the evidence for the sin, and then once he was forced to admit a lack of obedience, he did admit it, but he blamed others. We might say, We're sinners in the same way as Saul did, but it doesn't carry much weight in our hearts because we've not accepted personal responsibility. David, by by contrast, didn't explain away his sin. But perhaps the best view into his heart comes from the Psalms he wrote, and especially Psalm 51, which Christiane read earlier, and which is a personal prayer of repentance for his sin with Bathsheba. Let me just point out some of the things that come up in that psalm, if you can remember, that just show what kind of heart he had and how he responded to the sin. First, he recognized that he is and always has been sinful. He recognized the seriousness of the present sin, and he was pleading for mercy appealing to God's great love. He asks for the sin to be washed away for total cleansing again and again. He recognized that the issue wasn't just one sinful act, but rather reflects the nature of the heart. And he asks for a new, pure heart and a renewed spirit. He asks for the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. He expects the results of forgiveness to be joy, telling others about God and praise. And he knows that what God will respond to in response to sin is a broken heart rather than sacrifice. Let me just read that one verse or two verses from the psalm, verse 16 and 17. David said, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Wow. And that reflects the heart of God better than everything, I think. It's a heart that made a great king, and a heart that prepared the way for Jesus. So what do we do with that ourselves, personally? This record of 
David in his sin shows that to be great in God's eyes, it's not so much a case of aiming for a totally pure or sinless life as it is that when we do sin, we respond with true grief and repentance, with sorrow. It is God who makes hearts pure. It's not us by cleansing away the sin. We can't do that ourselves. So we need to be praying for an awareness of sin. We need to confess our sins regularly because there are sins there. It's just that sometimes we ignore them. We put them under the mats. We look the other way. Is it your habit to regularly examine your heart for sin? I don't do it enough. And preparing this has been a reminder to me. Let us aim to have a heart like that of David, shall we? Let's just pray together. Oh Lord God, you see deep down into our hearts places that we, even we, can't see. But Lord, we want our hearts to be pure. So help us to see some of that sin. Lord, help us to confess from deep down in that heart. We ask you, Lord, to give us hearts that are pure. We ask you, Lord, never to take your Holy Spirit from us. We ask you, Lord, to make us as a congregation, at the moment a scattered congregation, of people who love you, people with broken hearts, people who love you because you love us despite our sins. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged, too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.